This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Welcome back to The Forging Table. The mission of Undaunted Life is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. At The Forging Table, you'll see a group of regular guys forging spiritual resilience by digging into God's Word, and we're welcoming all of you to come along on that journey with us. Now, to my right is Ryan Horn, a veteran of The Forging Table, but the last time you were on here, I I kind of set you up poorly because I put a couple of rookies across from us. This is the third time. Third time? Third time I've got new rookies because the last time was uh, Zach and uh, Russell gonna, Moore. Yeah. Russell, okay. Not the yeah, Russell not Moore. Not the Russell Moore, but a Russell Moore. No, he's but the Russell Moore for me. There's a couple of strangers <laughs> across the table, and I don't know how I feel about that, but we got a long ways uh, to go here. I'm, so we got Caleb Martin and Robert Lewis. Guys, welcome to the forging table. Happy to have you here. But as a as a baptism by fire here, the, the way that we get you you know, interested or get our audience interested in you. We have you answer three questions and you got two minutes total to answer all three of these questions. So Caleb, you're going to go first. So it's, how'd you become a Christian? How do you like to study the Bible and how does your mind work? And if you forget one of those, it's all good, but two minutes to answer those. How'd you become a Christian? How do you like to study the Bible and how does your mind work? Ready, set, go. Caleb Martin. All right. So, um, you know, people talk about, did you grow up in a Christian home? <clears throat> and the, uh, the answer to that for me was I thought I grew up in a Christian home and then, you know, I'm, I'm young and people are like, no, I think you just celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. I'm pretty sure you're Jewish. So, <laughs> okay. um, yeah, so grew up in that, thought I was a Christian home. Turns out my parents, when uh, in the 70s, when cults were in vogue, uh, they got involved in one. Uh, if you want to go down a Google rabbit trail, it's Herbert Armstrong. Uh, Ooh, I'm literally up. Googling yeah, it now. I, I this is the first time we've had a, a member of a cult or yeah. a cult family. What was the name of it again? Is this the Philadelphia brother? brother? Yes. I it know is. about that. The Armstrong Center is right up there. That's right. Up the street in Edmond. right down the road. That's what that so is. Yeah, yeah, that, that yeah. place is a cult, dude. I can yep. tell you all about it. Oh, man. So. I'm okay. surprised you're not we, married we're off. We're going to meet up afterwards. I feel like I need some context. No, I don't know if I want afterwards. I think we may need it here. Like We may break the two-minute rule, but we need some time with Nehemiah, but we may have to get back into that, but go ahead. So, uh, anyway, I, I always remember my dad not going to church and, um, but I always remember him reading his Bible. So long story short was one of the dates that this guy predicted Christ's return was 1985. Okay. Oop. I was born in 83. <clears throat> my parents were living in Oklahoma. Obviously he did not come back. So, uh, my dad was like, I'm out. And we moved back to Wichita and, um, he just decided I'm going to figure this out on my own. So he starts reading his Bible and, and you know, the, the Lord speaks to him, obviously, through that. Uh, he starts going to a non-denominational Christian church when I was about 12. And kind of gradually, one by one, the Lord found my family. And we, I, I found the Lord, or the Lord found me when I was 17. And it was either go play junior college baseball and live that world or do something different. So I decided to come to OU and um, start over where there were no expectations. So I found, Lord found me, like I said, uh, when I was 17, 18. And then, uh, you know, went from there. So there's been a lot of unpacking over the last many years for that. Um, and we can, we can talk about that all you want. Okay. Well, now we, how how do you study study the the Bible Bible? and how's your brain work? Okay. So, uh, when I got to OU, I got involved with campus crusade and the way they, they taught it was kind of the, uh, I believe it's called inductive, which is the OIA is the way I looked at it was the observation interpretation application. So that's what I've always done. Um, was just the first way that it was kind of described to me on how to do that. And um, that's how I study it. So I like to write. So I'll, I'll write down my prayers and things like that as well. Um, 
and then how I learn, I'd say I'm, I learn by doing, um, pretty visual, but then also, yeah, just learn by, by doing things and teaching people other things. So are you a um, quick processor, slow processor? Like whenever you get information, how do you like to do that? My wife would laugh at that question. I'm a slow processor. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) A little bit of a slow process. She's quick. I'm slow. Okay. Very good. Well, that's why y'all work well together. So that's Caleb Martin. Now, Robert Lewis, same thing. How'd you become a Christian? Well, I always forget my questions. How'd you become a Christian? How does your brain work? That's the third one. And then how to study the Bible. Bible. There it is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I became a Christian whenever uh, I was pretty young, but fell away from the faith. Uh, Family was in and out of church whenever I was younger. And uh, I, I don't know, around 12, just started going down a rough path. And it took quite a while for me to you know, make sense of it and get on the other side of it. And, and it was really just a transformative experience that led me to be able to uh, just rededicate my life. And from that point forward, it was just God got a hold of me. And it was everything I could do just to be relentless in the pursuit of being able to follow after him and business and personal faith. And, you know, and, and it's just kind of ethos as a person and the way in which I interact with others, you know, it just, um, uh, and, and so we're 25 years later, you know, here, here we are. So that's kind of a compressed version of a really long story very, that we've had compressed. the opportunity to talk, to talk about before. Yeah, for sure. Uh, like to study the Bible. There's a method years ago, a buddy of mine, Stephen Hall, came back from a 10-year missions trip in Morocco, and we went through a year-long, just uh, intensive Bible study with a small group of guys. And there's this here method, this highlight, whatever you're experiencing. You know, whatever you're reading on, just highlighting that particular passage of it, letting that be at the forefront, um, explaining it, taking a way to be able to explain that and how does it apply to my life would be the next part. And then um, 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 just moving it forward. So me just getting a chance to really do a deep dive in one particular passage has been what I've done in the past. My daughter asked me to kind of go through this year-long Bible study with her. And so we've been going through that at the same time here recently. So that's been kind of a, just a different approach that we've been doing this chronological approach of going through the Bible here recently. And uh, my mind works, I don't know. Sometimes I think it just works too fast and I probably need to be a guy that slows down a little <laughs> bit more, but man, I am a hundred miles a minute and I'm all over the place. I just got so many things that are always going on. So um, yeah. Yeah, I'm just like a shotgun blast most of the time on how my mind works. That's how you and I uh, get along is because we're both that way. And sometimes our shotgun blasts like hit each other. But then, yeah, like with Caleb, it's like (laughs) you definitely you will just you will smile. You'll flash your blue eyes and you will think about something for a very, very long time. We're all just mesmerized. We're like, what's he going to say? Ten minutes later, he hasn't said it yet. But I do have a question for the table before we dig into Nehemiah 10. So diagonal from me is Robert Lewis, who happens to be a purple belt in jiu-jitsu. I happen to be a purple belt in jiu-jitsu. So Caleb, Ryan, what's what exactly is the reason why y'all are so not dangerous? Like what what's going on here? Ouch. Oh, I'm dangerous. Are you dangerous though? I'm dangerous. Just by yourself? Dangerously good looking. Okay, there it is. Nice. There's confidence nice. at least. I mean, come on, guys. What, I have what's confidence? Excuses. I might get beat up, but I have confidence. Well, because no Caleb, you and I like we have baseball in common. Obviously, like the that's the greatest sport ever invented. Unless you're a communist and then you don't like it. But baseball I mean, is. but you can't unless you have a bat. You can't use baseball skills to stop a wolf. You know, an actual like human wolf. You know, from getting you. So, so what's the problem? What's I was just waiting until I turned forty to get started. Okay. So Ooh, what's funny? What's funny about that is there is a guy at our gym. He's a one stripe white belt, which means he's been training for about six months. He started training at the age of 50. Nice. And he went and he got an origin gi. He went, you know, he's got the, the Jocko origin gi. And it's just like, it is never too late to get after it if your body 
works. And so Robert and I have varying levels of body working at the at the moment. So he's coming off a couple of surgeries, so am I, but it is what it is. It I've had no surgeries. <laughs> so it's probably because you I don't let sweaty dudes you're also, all over me. You're also weak like a baby. Okay. <laughs> like, I look just, like a baby. I'm not weak. Like, okay. We can we can test that later. <laughs> let's do what it. What is that <laughs> uh, with Father's Day coming up that if your father doesn't do jujitsu, it's Mother's Day. You know, you're basically right. just uh, right. Right. It's like you happy know, Mother's Day to your father. Yeah, I know Robert Robert talked to my buddy Donnie. He said he'll get a special plan together for us. That's so, right. Yeah, That's right. we we can get that going, guys. Don't I, worry. We I, have I'll all kinds of plans. And speaking of plans, how you like that segue? Let's go into Nehemiah ten because it. we're seeing we're seeing a lot of really amazing things. Because here's the thing with the book of Nehemiah. Chapter four seems like the climax because it's talking about you know defending and you know you got your sword in one hand and your and your work tool in the other. And you might think these later latter chapters are a bit of a slog. Like, you know, what's going on here? Like, how is this applicable to me? But uh, I think there's a lot here. And you could even go back to our discussion of Nehemiah 3 and see like, I mean, we flowed on an hour and I had to cut us off. And that's a book just full of names and gate names and different things like that. But one of the first things I wanted to point out about Nehemiah 10 is from the very jump, the first 27 verses, they're talking about the people that sealed the covenant. Like if you're reading through the ESV, that is the the title, the people who sealed the covenant. There are 84 names here. So these are priests, Levites, lay leaders of different kinds. But many of these people that are mentioned here in the first 27 verses are not mentioned anywhere else in the book of Nehemiah, much less the rest of the Bible. They're not mentioned anywhere, okay? But what I think that this shows is that it takes all kinds of people to do the work of God, like all kinds of people. Like that was one thing I thought about is it takes different parts of the body. And, you know, we've, you know, you may talk about that in church, like different talents, like some people have sexy talents, like they're great teachers or expositors or preachers or something like that. And then you have the non-sexy, but also very, very important talents of administrative people or people that love to volunteer and be behind the scenes. But right from the jump, that's what struck me as I'm just, you can just read through these, these, these names, but these were real people, you know? I think what's pretty cool about this and what I love about Nehemiah 10 is like all the wisdom that's in it. Like, hey, we're looking at names right now, but the rest of the chapter is just chock full of wisdom. But uh, I noticed something that was pretty crazy is that you don't even see Ezra's name. In right. This. Nehemiah mm-hmm. is the first name listed yeah. as the governor, but that is interesting. You don't see Ezra's name and you're like, why don't you see Ezra's name? And it's like he already brought the covenant to the people. He already showed them where they were going wrong and what their, what their uh, past family members did. And so he, he fulfilled his work. Um, and now it's the rest of you know, Jerusalem finding a way to seal their new covenant with God. Cause mainly I don't think Ezra ever lost that covenant. He still tried to try to do what he needed to do. Well, I wonder if, if what you guys would think about this again, we don't exactly know why Ezra's name is not mentioned, yeah. but it's that like, he is it almost like he's done his part? We don't need to, you know, put his name on a brick and that's put it in the, in the road kind of a thing. Like basically what I was saying. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's, yeah. But that's an interesting concept because we live in a time where you have to be the guy blowing your own trumpet. There was a portion of the, uh, maybe the commentary that I had read through the Dake Study Bible that had talked about Ezra at one point in time, Ezra and Nehemiah was just the book of Ezra. Right. Yep. It was just all one And then book. later it divided up right. into being the book of Ezra and then Nehemiah. And uh, it was interesting whenever I was reading through Nehemiah, how little that Ezra was mentioned at one time with them both being written by and at the same time or mm-hmm. whatnot. But. 
but even stylistically in both books, it comes, it switches and vacillates between first person and third person, like different, different times. Like, you know, Nehemiah is referring to himself, uh, in the first person and then other times in the third person. So it, it's kind of interesting how that, that comes in and out as well. sounds like me when I was 23. Oh, I used to refer to myself in the third person. Ooh, yeah, it was really bad. You're like Donald Trump. Oh man, it was worse than that. <laughs> Donald Trump does. He used to call myself the horn. <clears throat> oh my gosh. That's the year How's you it? met your wife, though, right? It is the year I met my no, wife. No, no. Yes, it was. I met my wife. I was a. I was That's a, gross. Yeah, I was. Oh, I talked in the third person. I had a jar that I had to put money into that my roommates would make me put money into, whenever I said something, you know, I don't know, Schmidtish. I would say from uh, the new girl. Without, I know this is a kind of a family program. I don't want to use the D word. So, uh, I don't know what word you're talking about because I don't watch New Girl. You don't watch The New Girl? Does no. anybody else at this table? That is 0 right. for 3 in baseball terms. That's Ryan, all right. I watched you watch it. New Girl? I, watched I was New too Girl. busy watching, uh, I don't know, I'm trying to think of the girl, Gilmore Girls or something oh, like really? that. Oh, really? I guess. Okay. No. No, but uh, I did talk to the third person. It was really, it was really bad. I got to so. be honest. I'm so glad I met you in your mid 30s. Yes. Because <laughs> if I met you in your 20s, like there's a 0% chance. That but you had great accountability friends. even in your early 20s to have friends that were trying to hold you accountable to the point oh, that yeah. you had to put money every time you were. And then they bought pizza with it at the end of the week. But, so. but did it help? And them? didn't let you eat. Like, so, yeah, you know, you know like Robert's making the very adult point that, yeah, yeah, that's good to have friends hold you accountable. But did it work? It didn't. They all end up moving out. I own the house. <laughs> so they all moved. Oh, you own the house. So you kicked them out, basically. No, no. You're like, no, I don't want this level of like, accountability. They were like, man, this guy's a D-bag. I'm going to go ahead and move. But, uh, no, I met my wife and uh, literally started uh, talking in the first person. Um, and good move. Uh, sad, yeah. Sadly, yeah. I... And that's why I think I probably keep the weight on as I lost a ton of weight and I just became this person I did not like. Okay. So to but that point, I need to lose weight though. That again. sounds like an excuse to, to not it lose weight. Excuse. Oh, but, but wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm going to detour from my own point here. I got an email the other day that it was so funny, but it also made me really, really mad. And I haven't talked about it on the show yet, but it's this guy, he's got a really good friend and they all used to kind of work out together and we're totally getting off the MI 10 guys, but we're coming back. He, he said that he has a friend that has decided that he is going to stop exercising entirely because he wants to spend more time in the word and studying and prayer and all that. And so at a, at a univariate analysis standpoint, it's like, oh my gosh, this guy is so holy. But my immediate response to him is like, yeah, your friend's a turd. He's full of crap. Like, that's not why he's doing it. He's doing it because working out is very, very hard and has diminishing immediate returns. Mm. Meaning if you work out really, really, really hard today, and then you take the rest of the year off, that really, really hard work you put in today does not last you the rest mm. of the year. It doesn't last you mm-hmm. till tomorrow, really, right? You might be sore, but you did the benefits are basically gone at that point. And I was like, your buddy, your buddy better become the next Billy Graham. Yeah. But, but what it sounds like is it's an excuse that he's cloaking in this air of holiness. So it's like, oh yeah, when I was, you know, smaller, you know, I talked this way. And so now I'm this size, even in college, hang on, hang on. Even in college, every time we would need to do a presentation, you would wear a suit and I'm 20 years old. And my girlfriend at the time, now my bride, she's, I mean, she was very straightforward with me. She's like, yeah, every time you wear a suit, you're just kind of a jerk. (laughs) <laughs> like, because, because, you know, just when you wear a suit, your fancy shut your mouth. <laughs> no, it's not true. But like, you know, you got a tie on, everything's real buttoned up. And she's just like, you, you just, you treat people differently. You're, you're kind of rude. And I was just like, oh no, I think about that 
every single time I put on a suit and tie to this day. That was almost 20 years ago. And it's just like, cause it had that level of impact on me. Well, I, um, the weight didn't really have that level. You know, I just lost weight and thought I was really cool and drove a BMW. You know, I just was a young, stupid kid. So luckily I found my wife and well, Kyle Thompson thinks that's a really, really good thing that you've gotten past that because Kyle yeah. Thompson's a smart guy. Kyle Thompson, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <clears throat> the horn. I really don't want to get too far off of it, but I think let's it's just a go. Trap. We're already so far yeah, off. Yeah, we'll it's come a back. trap we'll that a back. lot of men get into is they try to be disciplined in an area, but they forsake so many other areas in their life that they yep. need to have a discipline in at the same. So as an excuse, he's yeah. saying, I need to be more disciplined in my time in the word. But who would ever say I'm going to spend less time with my wife? or I'm going to spend less time mentoring my kids, or I'm going to spend less time giving my best effort at work or whatever that development may be. But God calls us to be men that live a life of discipline and holistically and not just compartmentally in one area. So two things. Number one, the slow cooker in the corner, I think it said two words so far. So at some point I'm going to ask you a direct question so that you can hop in here. But the second thing to your point, Robert, is it's the people that you know, because again, we, we speak the language of jujitsu. They're a black belt in jujitsu, but they're a white belt in relationships, yeah, yeah. right? So, because we know guys that are, that are dangerous, you know, really, really solid, competitive level, brown belts, black belts, but they haven't had a relationship work out. Maybe they've got some kids and that, you know, they don't really see or don't have a great relationship with them. And I mean, you guys can fill in the blanks with all these other scenarios. And it's like, if you look at every part of your life as a belting system, so in jujitsu, it's white belt, beginner, and then blue belt, purple belt, brown belt, black belt. And in jujitsu, it's like, it's like a real martial arts. Like if you train all the time, it'll take you 10 years to get your black belt, right? You don't get it in a year and a half by, you know, some Wing Chun guy down by the airport. Like you, it's like a legit hard martial art to learn and to advance. But think about if you thought about your marriage in that way, how you study the Bible in that yeah, way. Yeah. You know, for me, I'm a, I feel like I'm a white belt in prayer, which is, what do no, you mean? No. How can you be a white belt in prayer? and run a, a Christian company and like do all these different things. But it's like, it's, you're giving yourself a grade and it's not an A through F it's a B or F, mm. right? Because it, you can't really get by being a C or D in prayer, yeah. right? That type of thing. So Caleb, I need you to start talking in three, ready. two, one, go. <laughs> all right. So <clears throat> thanks for giving me that time to think about this. You're welcome. So um, the thing that stands out to me right here at the, at the start is, you know, we're talking about a wall that they were working on for, what was it, 52 days, I mm-hmm. think? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like 30 to 40 feet tall, nine feet wide, two and a half miles around, roughly. And he names 84 people. So, mm. you know, you got to think, like, 84 people didn't do that. No. You know? I mean, he's talking about, he's talking about the priests, the Levites, the leaders. Um, he's talking about people that stood out. I'm sure he could have easily made this list 250 people. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? So um, these are the people also that, that raised their hand and said, we're going we're gonna to sign this covenant. You know, we're going to sign this document. So, um, I mean, you think about the, all the covenants that you've made in your life, and it's a pretty short list, um, I would think, especially covenants that mean what this meant. So to me, those, those 84 names, I mean, not only is he recording history, obviously, but he's pointing these people out that these are, these are the faithful ones. You know, these are the ones that they were there, you know, sun up to sundown, 52 days in a row. Um, and we could lean on them big time. So, um, that was the thing that stood out to me. And, and also just kind of the, the wrap at the end of, uh, chapter nine is I think it was eight and nine that they're kind of, you know, they're talking about all the things that, that God did for them to get to this, get this to this point. And it wraps up with in view of all this. And then they go into this chapter of, 
this is the promise, right, that they're making. Right. So um, when you point out, Caleb, like covenant, that we don't use covenantal language in modernity uh, as evidenced by the fact that you go before God and you make a covenant of marriage and the divorce rates outside the church are basically identical to the divorce rates inside the church. And even inside the church, we basically ignore that part of the Bible where Jesus talks about if, you know, you, you marry someone that's divorced and wasn't divorced for adultery or death or something like that. And you have so many Christian pastors blessing second, third, fourth marriages. And, you know, uh, even violative of wearing the white dress when they've already, that was a sign of virginity and purity and all that. And how many women actually make it to the altar with that intact. And it's, it's a, it's, it's just an interesting thing that this, and we'll talk about it a little bit more when we get down into verse 28 and, and from there, but we don't think in terms of covenants anymore. Everything's like, and I don't know what that is. I, I'd, I'd be curious to hear what y'all, what y'all believe about this because it's like, we have so many contracts now like, you know, so all of us are in some level of business, right? At different levels. When have you ever done a deal on a handshake? And I, I don't mean you shook a guy's hand and said, hey, I'll see you next Tuesday. But like an actual handshake deal to, to buy something or to start something or a division of uh, revenue or, you know, split or something like that. We don't do that anymore because we're not a covenantal people. And we're also, we just overall lack integrity as a group as well. What do y'all think? I'd agree with that. I think, um, I like how you brought up marriage. Marriage is a covenant. I mean, it took my wife and I probably like six years to figure that out. Um, we actually went through some tough times in our marriage and went to a, a weekend to remember. And that's when we kind of learned what God's you know, design of marriage was, which is crazy being in church for almost like 15, 20 years at that point. And you didn't even know what God's design for marriage was. You had to go to a, a special event to do that. And so um, we, we learned it was a covenant. We were treating our marriage like a contract. It was like, all right, 50-50 here, 70-30 there, and it's not 100-100. That's what a covenant is. It's the God giving his 100 and the um, Israelites giving their 100. And the Israelites in this point are not giving their 100, so, or we're not giving their 100. I think, too, it's a shift of our perspective in covenants. Like It's very clear that in Nehemiah they were making a covenant to God, but at the same time they were making a covenant to each other to continue to guard and protect the city, to keep it kept up, to be able to continue to expand it. Whereas the flip for us is, I think in marriage, we have a covenant with our bride, but we fail to realize that that covenant really is, is to the Lord. And, and our, our, our promise that we made to our wife is a promise that we made to God that we would guard and protect and love them. And so I think we've just moved this shift away from the covenant with the Lord like Nehemiah, they clearly had, and we've attached it to people that's so easy for us to sometimes us to emotionally your convenience pulls us apart or maybe, uh, you know, if it's, if, if it's a business agreement and we're not making the profits that we thought we were going to make that we could pull away from. But when we commit to something that's, it's right. far beyond. Well, and Caleb, you've, you've got the most kids at this table. You have four, you have four boys. It's kind of we're interesting. Oh, oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, we're neck and neck. My math is terrible. The oldest so, boy, three girls. They got eight kids on the other side of the table, dude. <laughs> yeah, we only okay. got five on ours. Like, the worst uh, they're not rookies at everything, apparently. But, like, <laughs> but the interesting thing about kids is we almost have an innate covenantal connection to our kids, but we don't feel that way about our brides. Because how many times have you seen this? Yeah, you know, things just aren't working out with the kid's mom. Like, you know, we're getting a divorce, but I'm just going to do everything I can to, to be there for the kids. Mm -hmm. 
So, so wait a minute, you're, you're going to do everything you can. You're going to empty the tank for your kids, which is two thumbs up good, but you don't have that same stamina for your bride that you supposedly made a covenant before God to care for whom you're supposed to be with as well after the kids are no longer living in your house. I'd like, it's, I don't know if that's just a deeply societal problem or if that's just something, again, it's that innate connection to kids, but not to our bride somehow. But I think if you, I mean, that's, that's nothing but a cop out, yeah. obviously. I mean, if you think about your kids for longer than about 30 seconds, you realize that the best thing you can give to them is, is a mom and a dad that right. live in the home together. And modeling right? a healthy marriage. Absolutely. Um, I mean, even if, even if your relationships with your kids aren't great, Still, the best thing you can give to them is a great relationship with your wife, right? So, um, I mean, I think that, you know, we get away from covenantal language because if you think about contracts, I mean, I'm not an attorney, but I feel like there's, I, want, I think it's called indemnifications, but mm -hmm. there's like the section that basically gives everyone an out yeah. from a contract. And that doesn't happen in a covenant, right? Yeah, there's I no mean, prenups a, in no. a covenant either. Yeah, a covenant is a promise, period. That's it. So, you know, contracts give us outs. Um, I mean, I think that, we're, we're in a, in a time that's full of kind of the, I gotta, I gotta make sure to get mine. I've got to make sure that I'm happy. So if I'm going to be happy over here, then I need to get out of whatever it is that I'm, that I'm committed to air quotes. Yeah. So. I think there's some foreshadowing in this chapter in regards to that in marriage. It's like, how do we look at our marriage? How do we look at the people that we're marrying? Where are we at in regards to that? Because we're going to go further in Nehemiah about how we shouldn't be unequally yoked from uh, where we're at, so with who we're marrying. And so if we're building that contract and we're building that, not contract, but that covenant, we want to make sure we build that covenant with what's, what glorifies God. Yeah, you like you have the right pieces to make the right, the right house. And I know there's, there's a lot of construction and, and building stuff in Nehemiah, but we're talking about that kind of in a higher level. But again, I don't want to, before we move on, I, I don't want you guys listening to this to miss out on those first 27 verses, just buzzing through it. And we'll probably talk about this in latter chapters that we have coming up. These were real people. So we don't know their names right now, but just think about in the community that you live in. Whether you're super connected, go to the chamber meetings and, you know, you participate in local elections. There are people in your community that are not known outside your community, but they do heroic things. You know, you think about, you know, the, the baseball uh, coach in, in middle school that took a, a liking to one particular kid that's kind of having a rough go of it, puts a little bit more effort into, you know, the jujitsu coach that sees that kid that's going down the wrong path. And instead of handing him, you know, a bag of weed to sell, you're handing him a gi and telling him, you know, Hey, I'll see you, you know, four times a week. And it's those, those unsung heroes. This is a list of unsung heroes. How do we know they're unsung? This is the only place that most of these people are mentioned, right? And again, how many people, this goes back to your point earlier, Caleb, like how many of these people were not, uh, like were not mentioned here, were not listed here because 84 people didn't build that wall. It was at least hundreds, right? If not more. You know, there's a continuation on that too, is that these men specifically were, their names were written down 2,500 years and we're still saying their names or trying to say their names yeah, for best. the most part, <laughs> but how many was there a dozen people that were underneath each one of these men? Was there a hundred? Was there a thousand? Yeah. But these men, whether they were born into a place of influence or whether their leadership skills earned them a place of influence, there were countless men 
and women that were underneath them that did that work. But their names were the ones that were chosen to be written down that we're still reading 2,500 years later. And what was it about them that caused them? What leadership skills did they consistently put out there that allowed their names to come to the forefront of this covenant document to be able to be written down? And I'm just causing us in our own lives to be able to go, who is, is it our family of, of six, you know, that are underneath us? Is it mm. the businesses that we have? Is it the community of friends that we have? Is it our Sunday school? Is, you know, what is the group of people that are underneath us that we are boldly leading, caring for, protecting that, um, you know, we're almost held accountable for in the covenant that was made, their names were the ones that written down. I think that's a great point. And I think as, as men, we tend to diminish the breadth of our, of our impact. And we don't think about it. We think about our immediate family sometimes, but maybe we don't think about it like, okay, I'm teaching this lesson to my eldest so he won't be a knucklehead. But then he's going to carry that lesson with him to school or to the team that he's on or to the, the church group. And because kids don't know morality, right? They, they, don't, they, they can view it, they can learn it, but they don't just just know, oh, this is right, this is wrong, or this particular situation is bad, this one's good. You know, we have some innate feelings, but they're going to be a, an extension of the morality of your household. Oh, when your kid is offered a drink when they're very, very young, why are they going to drink that or why are they not going to drink that? Is it an immediate no? Is it a delayed no? Is it a delayed yes? Is it an immediate yes? All that is kind of the residue of what you've taught them inside the household. Yes, they are beings that have free will that can do whatever they want. They can choose to make whatever decisions go down whatever path they want to. But again, at this table, I know a little bit about y'all's individual stories. There's residue of the decisions that you made growing up that is a direct uh, like <laughs> descendant of the family that you were raised in. I mean, Caleb, right from the beginning, you talked about how your family was basically following a cult that had to have some impact on you, on your marriage, on how you talk to your kids, whether it's like you're trying to be the photo negative of that exact worldview where you're trying to like model it, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And you think about <clears throat> like the way this actually kind of reminds me of verse, I think it's first or second Timothy at the beginning is that the things that I've taught you, uh, Paul's talking to Timothy, the things I've taught you, um, take them and teach them to others so that they can pass them on. Yeah. And the thing that's so cool about that verse is that you're talking about four generations, right? It's the things I've taught you that you can teach somebody else to pass them on. Even if you um, can't name the person who did the really initial good. lesson. Right, yeah. exactly. Um, so, you know, I think about um, things like children and, and the way that we're going to raise them, right? Uh, I mean, the stuff that, the decisions that we make is going to impact for generations, absolutely. So, I mean, even just recently in our, in our personal life, there's a family that kind of a bad decision on a marriage, right, that we'll see later. They're, they're marrying someone that doesn't align from a belief standpoint. And it's, it's in shambles right now. I mean, they're, they're, it's going to be generational impact, right? So, I mean, you know, I grew up in a moral home. We were not involved in the truth um, at the beginning, but, you know, at least the, the commitment, the covenant to a spouse was there. Um, and praise God, they found the Lord together. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, the, we're seeing a lot of things that here in, in chapter 10 that, you know, if we can live by these covenants and then you're, you're, family's going to reap the benefits of those for, for generations. And, so. and we'll see more of that, especially as we get into the latter well, chapters. I do just go ahead, to set up for the next part. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, that's the point of being a father is to set up some sort of direction for your children. And I believe that's what we did 
in the past with Nehemiah when they were going over the covenant and they were going over, you know, they had their, uh, their sackcloth and, and they were mourning what they, what they've done in their past. And then they took that message to the leaders and the leaders took that back to their families. And so we have to take that message, the message that we have of Christ to our families. Like we have to disciple our kids. And I think that's what these leaders are doing here is they're discipling. Cause we'll come back when we come back into this and we start everything, we're going to talk about them knowing the law. Now everybody knows the law. Everybody knows what is right because it's been said to them. And then how do they take that and practice it? When we see that right, when we get in, let's go ahead and get in the next section, starting in verse 28, verse 28 through the end of Nehemiah 10. This is, this is essentially the entire community uh, that they're pledging. This is how it was uh, in the Reformation Study Bible. This is how they worded it. The entire community is pledging their fidelity to the covenant. Um, and, you know, you see in verse 28, you know, they're, they're talking about the demanding divorce uh, from their pagan spouses uh, to, to bring themselves closer to the covenant. Um, and then there was another group of people that just never married what they would call heathens, uh, that were from an idolatrous people. And then as you continue on, uh, through the end of Nehemiah 10, you see more of these standards that are set forth, but I want to go back to just the overall idea as to what's happening here, uh, in the latter part of Nehemiah 10, this is an entire community of people that are individuals that have individual families, individual jobs, individual opinions wirings, personalities, but they're all pledging their fidelity in a singular direction. Now, as we're going to see coming up in some later chapters, they did it somewhat horribly, depending on uh, the, the circumstances. But as of right now, we, we all live in Edmond, Oklahoma. Okay. Nice little suburb of Oklahoma City. We all like it here. It's safe. A lot of, you know, there's high property taxes. A lot of people here have uh, degrees and there's low crime. And yeah, it's a, it's a great place to raise a family. It's been named by, you know, a couple of dozen different, you know, periodicals. One of the best places or the best place in America to raise a family. Great. Is there any singular issue where the entire community of Edmond would point in one direction without like default and, and attack that one direction in a covenantal way. I can't think of one thing. Like you, you talk to statisticians, they're like, you cannot get a hundred percent of people to agree on anything. Ice cream is delicious. Rain sucks. Or just w- whatever the thing is, you will, you'll get 95%. That's kind of the, the ceiling threshold. There's always going to be that 5% or more of people that are just not going to go with the flow. But it seems like, at least at the time of the writing of this part or, or description of the history of this part, that that's exactly what was happening in Israel. I find that incredible, actually. To your point, I mean, you see, like, even at Edmund, right, how many churches do we have? Um, yeah. You can't, you can't, throw you can't a ball. even agree, yeah. even if you set aside everybody that says they don't believe, right? Yeah. Okay, now we're just looking at the believers. We can't agree on anything either. <clears throat> so, I mean, I think what's cool about this covenant and it, it, it does to me, it, it reeks up a little bit of like, <clears throat> we just went to church camp and we're really pumped up. So we're going to say that we're going to agree to a hundred percent of the law, you know, yeah. uh, which obviously we see is not going to work out. But what they're saying is in short, is that we want to be, we know that we're God's people. We want to be set apart, right? We want to be held to a different standard and the standard is the law at this time. So. Um, I mean, it, that to me is kind of what, what rings true, but even, like I said, even within the church, it's like, we can't even agree on one that we want to be set apart based on the law, but then what is the law? So I think it's pretty cool to look at. If you look at Nehemiah as a whole and you're looking at the wall, we're building a wall 
And then after they read the covenant, they're building another wall within themselves, a wall that's steadfast by God. That's good. And if you, if we look back at later chapters, you're going to see that wall start to get cracks, you know? And I think that's something that we have to look at in our Christian life. It's like, Hey man, we were at that summer camp. We were on fire for God. And then we got back into regular life and the cracks start to form. And how do we use God to cover those cracks? You know, not to put too much onto conditions, but I look at the condition of the people at this time in Nehemiah. They were scattered. They were broken. They were destitute. There was no safety that was there for the people as a whole. Um, you know, what, what, what were they facing? You know, did they own land where they were able to grow crops? They were selling their kids to be slaves. I mean, there was so much that they were there. They, they had nothing. And then I compare that to Edmund. We have everything. We have excess. We have an abundance. We, there, there's no scarcity of food. There's no fear of safety for the most part that's there. And I think it, it, it's indicative to as our comforts increase, sometimes our dependency on God, sometimes it's easy for us to just kind of pull back and we become lazy and we don't understand the importance of having a covenant and being in submission to the Father and whatnot. And so... I'm not trying to put too much on the conditions at the time that caused them to have this, but also bringing it into the conversation. No, I, I think you're spot on. And I don't think you could, you could be too forceful at that point. And this is why, how many people do you know that live in Edmond have ever had to pray the prayer? Give us this day, our daily bread. Yeah, none. And so I'm reminded again, the, the honorary fifth spiritual member of this podcast is Joby Martin. So he talks about in uh, sermons fairly often that he went to Uganda and it was him and some other American uh, pastors and preachers, and they were helping teach, you know, members of the Ugandan church how to do this, that, and whatever. And the, the, the conversation came up, and here Joby is with his team, and they're thinking, man, it's got to be just so hard to be a Christian in Uganda. Like, it's got to be darn near impossible. impossible. And the, he told that to one of the pastors, and he goes, no, it's almost impossible to be an Ameri- American Christian. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah. like... You know, we don't have the same opulence that you have. We don't have the same provision that you guys have. Like it just, you don't have to rely on God at all. And just think about to the point you were making, Robert, it's like, okay, just think about food. Just think about food. How many of us have killed an animal with our bare hands, have taken the meat off the bone and have put it in some sort of preservation manner, whether salting it or putting it in the freezer at our house. That's not something that everyone does. There's a good amount of hunters around here, but not something that everyone does. We, we go to a store that's air conditioned and it's perfect in there. It's 71 degrees, no matter what time of year it is. And you go and the, someone else has killed your animal. They have cut it up. They've put it into packaging. It's wrapped in cellophane and all you have to do is buy it. And we're so disjointed from that. And I'm not talking about this in like a, you know, prepper sense. Like, oh, what if, what if society, you know, falls down and now you don't know where to get chickens? Like, that's not the way I'm talking about it, but it's like, we, we have no connection to the difficulty of life. Yep. And if you think about technology, you know, from the first time you had AOL 56K modem and you had instant messenger to where we are today, every single thing that the smartphone can do is to make our lives easier. And this is kind of an argument against the people that are, you know, big into universal basic income and those types of things. It's like when life gets easier, we don't get better. Like we get dumber and lazier. Yep. Like we, we literally have the totality of history and human knowledge to this point in our phones, one Google search away. And we're also stupid. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we just, we don't spend our time 
on the things of God. We don't spend our time trying to build things that is going to lead to human flourishing. And so I feel like I'm preaching now, but that's, that's the thing that I see here. So I I think your point's still on. And to kind of echo where you're at, there's this book, the insanity of God by Nick Ripkin. Uh, It's an alias that he uses because when he was in those third world countries where it's illegal to preach the gospel, they didn't want to use his real name as you know, the proponent. He has another one that's the insanity of obedience. And I've never read a book that shifted my perspective more of how the gospel flourishes in the most um, dangerous of environments, you know, where people are persecuted the most, where, um, you know, they're up until death is where sometimes you will see the most fervent faith, where you'll see the most dedicated people that are the most passionate and loving about spreading the gospel. And um, I wish I had some of the quotes right now from, from his, but it framed really, really well what you were talking about. It really means something, you know, in places like that, that's, you know, and where there's, where there's a lot of adversity. It's like that kind of blows up your worldview when, when we're talking about, you know, a, a Lord that created everything that you can, um, that loves you, that you can trust in and have eternal life, right? I mean, that it doesn't, it doesn't have anything to do with like the circumstance. And I feel like the, like we're all talking about is the distractions just abound where we are. And I think that the challenge when I think about this, I mean, I'm always thinking about my, my kids when it's around this kind of topic. Uh, But then, you know, pretty quickly I go right back to myself that it's like, I want to, I want to figure out how to get rid of, you know, screens and different things for them so that they kind of understand how, normal people live right mm-hmm. not like normal people like but how can we be set apart like in chapter 10 like they're they're wanting to be um so you know i come right back to myself on like okay if i'm gonna ask them to do certain things then why am i not going to do those things myself thanks major gut check when i look back at this and seeing the certain things that they do i mean there's a purpose behind the things that they're doing um there's a purpose behind why um why they want to not give their daughters to, or sons to the peoples of the land or take daughters of, for their sons. And it's because they want to preserve their culture. You know, um, what we, we see back in Solomon's time is Solomon had that harem of women and Queen Bathsheba came in and he started building temples within around Jerusalem to honor the gods of his wives. And so these guys taking in wives who are teaching their children, not um, Hebrew, teaching them another language, you know, the only way to read the law is through Hebrew. So, if, you know, if those kids can't read Hebrew or speak Hebrew, their law dies out, their covenant dies out. And so then their people die out. And so there's a method to their madness in this. Yeah, I think there's certainly a method, but also you, you bring up a good point as you describe different things, certainly in the Old Testament. And Christians get this wrong as well, but this is mainly a sword that is wielded by people that hate Christians, hate the Bible, that type of thing. Just because you see it in the Bible, that does not mean it's prescriptive. So there are certain things in the Bible that are descriptive, but not prescriptive to you in, in 2023 in America. There are things in the Bible that were a, something from God that was to a particular people group at a particular time for a particular purpose. And so there are so many things, like people use parts of Nehemiah, morons back in the day, to say, yeah, this is why we shouldn't have interracial marriage. Look at the book of Nehemiah. It's like, okay you're a moron. Like that's, that, that's again, I, I I rail against univariate analysis all the time. You go one layer deep and then you build out your worldview and yeah, go ahead, Ryan. I'm just saying like, when you look at that, I don't look at that. I look at it descriptive. Yeah. But then I look at the prescriptive point 
in the New Testament of Second Corinthians six fourteen. Don't be unequally yoked, right, yeah. with an unbeliever, and that's what they're they're basically unequally yoked with a person who doesn't believe in God and believes in uh, other gods. And so that's right. it's not talking about the race; right. it's talking about who are they serving. And again, this there's a different thing between race and ethnicity and in terms of kind, like we're all part of the same human kind and, and, but yeah, go ahead. If you look at Elimelech, Elimelech left and went to Moab uh, during a, um, this is during the story of Ruth and took his sons and his wife and he wanted to leave the, uh, there was a, a a famine going on or, or something like that. And so he wanted to leave. He left, but he didn't, he did, he went against what God had called out in this covenant. So he died, his sons died because they married Moabite women. Well, look at Ruth, who is a Moabite. She left with Naomi, I believe is her name. I might be wrong. I believe it's Naomi. Um, And um, went back to Jerusalem and served God. And so uh, Boaz wasn't unequally yoked because when he met her and he married her, she believed in the God of the Israelites. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. She was, she was already converted yes. at that point. Yeah. And but so it had nothing to do with race or ethnicity. It had, had to do with an alignment with yeah. God and a Who belief in serve? God. That's yep. good. Yeah. And, and that's, I guess, a caution to any listeners out there, because maybe you, you grew up in a family that you thought was fundamentalist, but they were actually just really bad at reading the Bible, really bad at understanding it. And so maybe they, again, go back to several hundred years ago when people were saying that the African slave trade, shadow slavery in America was okay because slavery was described in the Bible seemingly in positive light. It's like you only get there by mental gymnastics. You only get there by literally exegeting the scripture improperly, which is to say that you're eisegeting it. You're putting your own opinion into the scripture so that it it comports with your worldview. Um, And as as we wrap up Nehemiah 10 here, I want to go all the way to the very last sentence of Nehemiah because I think this kind of puts a bow on everything that came before it. So from verse 28 through the beginning of verse 39, the very last words of Nehemiah 10 are, we will not neglect the house of our God. Now, you might think of that in terms of like, okay, so let's say you have a commercial building and there are things you need to do to upkeep that commercial building. And you just got out of a staff meeting where you described, okay, here's, you know, how often we're going to get the windows, um, you know, cleaned. Here's how often we're going to have the plumber come out, just make sure things are going good. Here's how often we're going to do this, this, and this. And we're just going to end the meeting with, hey, we're not going to neglect our building. We bought it. We're going to, we're going to upkeep it. That's what people will read this as. And they'll be like, oh, well, they're, they're just saying, yeah, you know, this is the summation of our list moving on. It's way, way, way bigger than that. We will not neglect the house of our God. Uh, the Reformation Study Bible said it this way, renewed spiritual commitment of the people to the house of God. Renewed spiritual commitment. And then my ESV Study Bible said this is fostering covenant faithfulness. Because it's one thing to list things and check boxes, and it's another thing to point your spiritual commitment and faithfulness in a consistent direction, again, not as a person, not as a company, as a people, which, which went far beyond the walls that Nehemiah had just rebuilt. Like that's, that's a big deal at the end of this chapter. Well, I think it's, when you look at that, neglect the house of God, I mean, they rebuilt the temple. And so now that was that, during uh, the book of Ezra that's yeah. described, I think Ezra six or seven. And so they've rebuilt the temple. And so now they've enacted a temple tax of a third of a shekel. And if you think about it, if you look back at the original law, and even at the time Jesus returns, it's now half a shekel. Um, but they were so poor and trying to get back into the city that they did a third of a shekel. Um, and that's to fill the storehouses. I mean, you've got to have burnt offerings. You've got to have oil. You've got to have 
all these things and the, and the goal of filling God's house and filling his temples with the storeroom, you fill those storerooms and we're going to see in, in chapter 13, how they neglect God's house again. Um, when it comes to one of their own enemies, it's crazy. I think there's, there, there's so much good here in, in Nehemiah, or were you going to say something? Robert? I was going to add on to it, just kind of wrapping up the neglect, the house of our God. When you look through the actual covenant and the terms to the covenant, there's 16 terms to that covenant. And maybe the first nine of them are all in reference to God's law, observe and do the commandments of the Lord, keep his ordinance and his statues, not give their daughters and wives as foreigners. Those are in alignment with relational. They have nothing to do with how to either repair the house or to even keep it by tithing or to keep the first fruits coming in to feed the people that are caring for the facilities themselves. You know, that, that the neglecting of the house of our God, the house of the Lord, is that Tommy Tenney, he had one years ago, it was a beautiful rendition about the house of God. And, um, but it talked about wherever the Ark of the Covenant went was the house, you know, kind of because it was God's presence that was there. And um, so I think that really wraps in not just, it's easy to look at the house of our God and think of it as the walled city that was there or the temple that had been rebuilt, but it really is that covenant in alignment with God. One thing that, uh, and we'll see what, what happens too. I mean, they talk about the house of God throughout these, these chapters, but um, one thing that I thought that was pretty neat that stood out was, you know, we're talking about this covenant that they made and there were 84 signatures on it. And one of the commentaries I read that <clears throat> it's, you know, all these and one of the things that we try and tell our kids too is like these, these stories all point to Jesus, right? Um, and this covenant required all these signatures, but there, the reminder that, that I read was that there's a new covenant coming, obviously, and this points to Jesus in that way. And it's the quote that I had here was that it, it would not require the signatures of a whole community of people. It would require just one signature in the blood of Christ ushering in this new covenant that would actually change their hearts. Um, so I think that's just kind of a reminder of like, listen, this is the, this is the, uh, the sins of people. This is the uh, depravity that we have that we can't keep these covenants, right? But the new covenant is coming. So I see that 100% because like when you're looking at a lot of this stuff, like, like Robert said, it's relational. Um, and how we can create wisdom from relationships. But then it also goes over, you know, ceremonial law, a lot of ceremonial laws taking place during this time as well. And that's what Christ came to, to be our, our last ceremonial sacrifice. Yeah. I just, I just gotta be honest with you guys. I, I loved this discussion today because how much of, again, this is a, we've had a lot of guys and this was never actually the point, I guess, of the forging table, but it's kind of ended up being that way. Guys all over the country are sending me messages. Hey, I started a forging table or I started a, a study like your study. And no one at this table is a professional Christian. Okay. We're all lay people. We have different translations of the Bible that we read. We have different commentaries that we like, different preaching styles and people that we listen to on podcasts or whatever. And just think about everything that we were able to in under an hour, like pull out of, of the scripture that at first glance or first reading is like, eh. There's some lists and all right, they, you know, third of a shekel. I don't even know how much that is in modern day. Like, is that like a third of a coffee or I don't know what that is. This is how you can study the Bible. So guys, as you're studying the Bible individually, but also in a group, 
just recognize that there are things that you can pull out of the text that don't seem like they're there, that you're not reading into it incorrectly either. So I think that this was a, a good idea of that, but we're going to have to leave the discussion for Nehemiah 10 there. But guys, come back here next Sunday where we're going to dig into Nehemiah 11. We might even convince Caleb to talk a little bit about the cult that his family was in. We might see if we can uh, pull that out of him. But make sure you guys read Nehemiah 11 before we go next week. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the only link we've got there is for our donation link. Guys, how do we pull off stuff like the forging table? How do we keep the podcast going? How do we keep the lights on around here? Is because we have guys like you that are partnering with us to equip men around the globe to push back darkness. Everything we do costs money. Like I wish that we could, you know, pay for stuff with hopes and dreams, but we can't do that. We need your guys' financial support to continue making products like what we're doing now and expanding into more stuff in the future. So please go to that link, undaunted.life backslash donate or just the link there in the description so that you can hop on board and be a part of the team with us. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. Also, we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Perpetua, which is off their self titled debut album on face down records the links are in the description i'm your host kyle thompson remember keep pushing back darkness keep forging spiritual mental and physical resilience keep seeking the lion of judah